Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the, tr- from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his uh, wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we consider this formative and familiar uh, story, we pray for insight and understanding on who you are and who we are and what kind of relationship you're calling us into with you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really good to be back uh, with you. As uh, some of you know, my family and I spent two weeks gone away from Advent Hope, which is always a sad thing, but this time we were in Italy, which made it just that much less sad. We tried to eat gelato for each and every one of you, in behalf of each and every one of you, and we accomplished that. And so... It was a lovely time. We uh, had a blast. Thank you all, by the way, for your advice. We got some great advice on where to go, what to see, and what to do, and it was uh, amazing, but we are really excited to be back here with you today. Can I tell you how crazy Advent Hope is? I think I, I may have shared this with some of you, but three weeks ago, before going to Italy for the first time, here at Advent Hope, you never know what's going to happen at Advent Hope. I go out at the front after our worship service, and there's a guy there, and as I often do to someone I don't know, I will ask them, you know, are you from New York? Where are you from? And he said, no, I am from Rome. That's crazy. So I was going to leave for Rome in like six days. So that was, and he was the pastor from the Roman church. Isn't that crazy? You just never know what's going to happen, A, in New York, or B, at Avent Hope. And so I got a chance also to go hang out at the Roman church. And then we walked to St. Peter's 
after worship. I mean, that's a pretty cool deal. Anyway, beautiful, beautiful family. We went to dinner with them. Great experience, but we are really excited to be back here with you in New York and excited to start a brand new summer series. We're just claiming this is summer. It's going to be 89 degrees tomorrow. Did you hear that? That's good. This is summer weather, so we are claiming summer, and we are starting a new teaching series uh, this summer looking at just some of the basic, the basic ideas that the Bible has to, to teach. And so today, we are going way back to the very beginning, the, the start of it all, Genesis uh, chapter 3. And the story is really uh, pretty simple here. We have uh, God, we didn't read this, but in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the story of God engineering an environment for his kids. This is, by the way, God who has existed in eternity in community, Father, Son, and Spirit. God who just embodies the idea of community. And now, in, in the intro to the, the, the narrative here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have the idea that God is going to perpetuate community by having some kids. And so Genesis 1 and 2 are two accounts of the story of God preparing things for his new kids. He engineers this environment, and he provides for all of the, the needs for his ki kids, plentiful food, a peaceful environment for them to live in, uh, interesting and rewarding vocation for them to be a part of, a companionship, and even the ability to create new life themselves. So God, who is the creator of life, embodies his kids with the ability also to create. So he just set everything up for their benefit, for them to flourish. And this reminds me, you know, we, we have a, we, we are in a, a, a phase in the Advent Hope life where we are just having babies right and left. I mean, they're just, they're just, Everywhere. Babies are everywhere. So we love babies here at Avon Hope. It was a cold winter. I think that might have had something to do with it. Everybody got a little cozy, and man, the babies are coming. I even learned of a new baby last night. Oh, it's one of those, one of those pastoral privileges to hear about new babies on the way. And I was an exciting one. They're all exciting. But another one, I can't tell you, no, I can't tell you who it is. can't tell you. You will find out soon enough. But we've got, we've got babies, and you know when you have, when you, ha you see, now you want to know, who is it? You're looking around, don't do that, please don't ask, never ask, are you having a baby? That's never a good thing to ask. Um, when you're going to have a baby, parents will prepare for the baby, right? So, uh, you know, if you, if you have the luxury of having, you know, a bedroom for the baby, which not, is not a given in, in our environment here in New York, uh, but if you have the luxury, you, you make the room ready for the baby, or you, you find your little space wherever the baby's going to be, and you want to provide an environment, you might do some painting, you get a special bed, a crib, you get all the stuff so that that baby is going to flourish and thrive and have everything it needs, and that you're going to have everything that you need to care properly for the baby. This is the picture of God in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, taking this very, very specific and detailed a time of preparing things and making sure everything is just right so that the environment is perfect for these kids that are now going to be part of the universe experience. So that's Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so God engineers this environment for humans to thrive in, uh, and, but, but, but includes in this environment a, 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 a metaphorically, we'll say a, a self-destruct button, if you will, a button that is there to give the opportunity to just blow up things if necessary and gives the inhabitants, Adam and Eve, the first parents, the opportunity 
and access to this self-destruct uh, button. And this is, this is in, in the form of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is to ensure that the kids have the opportunity to make their own choices, to have free will. You know the idea of free will. Philosophers have been debating about free will and determinism for uh, centuries. The Bible's idea is like free will is integrated into the narrative, the story of creation, that God puts a tree in the garden, and this is the self-destruct button. So if the kids ever decide that they want to go on their own, they have the opportunity to do that, so they're not just robots living out their experience and having no choice of their own. So boldly, God gives them that, uh, that opportunity. So engineers an environment for them to flourish, but provides an out for them if they want to use it. It's very clear, don't do this, because if you do it, things are going to happen, uh, but it is there. And so uh, the self-destruct, you know, I think of the self-destruct button, this tree of the garden, or the knowledge of good and evil, similar to like, you know, there are things that we have in our experience that you just don't touch unless you want catastrophic things to happen. If any of you drive, any of you drive, see, this is me driving. See, I got it down. They were making fun of me this morning because I was driving up here, which made me look like I was, you know, very, a bad driver. Anyway, if you're driving and you know what you never want to do when driving, even though it's there, is to pull the parking brake. And just, unless something is just catastrophic, you know, that, bu that button, that is there, and you could use that, but if you do it, or, or to, to, to take, if you go 70 miles an hour down the highway and to throw the car in the reverse, you know, that option is available to you. You could do that at any moment. Have you ever thought, what if I just threw this thing in the reverse right now? It's available, it's, but you don't do that because you know there's going to be catastrophic uh, uh, results of throwing your car into reverse while you're hurtling down the highway at 70 miles an hour. So again, this is the idea that God creates this environment, he puts his kids there in the environment, but gives them the opportunity to, to mess things up if they so, if they so uh, desire this, this self-destruct button, if you will. So Genesis chapter 3, our story for today, our text of emphasis today, we have the first instance of humans hitting that self-destruct uh, button. And as soon as they do, as soon as the, the, the fruit is taken, all hell breaks loose, literally. So you have this environment where they're, by the way, we don't know how long from Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation and the creation of the first man and woman, we don't know how long they were in that garden enjoying a life to the story of Genesis chapter 3. Could have been a little while, could have been a long time, we have no idea. But Genesis 3, we get right to the story. Suddenly, after being in this environment that God has created for them so that they will flourish, they decide, hit self-destruct button, all hell breaks loose. Woman starts yelling at man. Uh, or, or man, God, God inquires with, with a man. Man starts yelling at woman. It always starts with that. Man starts yelling at women. I'm sorry, women. Why are we yelling at you? Man starts yelling at woman. Woman starts yelling at snake. Everybody is disturbed. Instantaneously, things go to hell, literally. It's a mess from, from this like copacetic environment where everybody is getting along and it's peace and love to arguing uh, with each other. Man, husband, wife, arguing with God, arguing with a snake. When you're arguing with a snake, you know something has definitely gone uh, haywire here. And so this is the, the first instance of this self-destruct button being pushed, and it just doesn't go uh, well. But, but God has included this really 
interesting provision. So the self-destruct button is there. The tree is in the garden. But then God also has a provision so that if the self-destruct button is pushed and everything goes to hell, literally, God has a plan even for that. He has a provision even uh, for that. And that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the first inkling of good news. So from Genesis 3, 1 to 14, it's all bad news. It's catastrophic things happening. But Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, theologians use a word called proto-evangelium, the first good news. That's your Latin for today. The first good news, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says that God turns. So man and wife, they're arguing with each other. The snake, the serpent, God turns to the serpent. The implication here is talks directly to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so the idea is that uh, this serpent is going to be destroyed. There's going to be a crushing of the head, but, but the offspring of the woman is also going to experience some, some pain, some tragedy. There's going to be a, a biting of the heel. So a crushing and a biting of the heel. Now, it's this proclamation, Genesis 3.15, that we want to get to in just a few minutes. But let's go back and consider what happened with the self-destruct button, this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Because I think if we're honest as human beings, we have all been in that moment where we hit the self-destruct button in our life. We've done things that are destructive to our own experiences. So we can relate to Adam and Eve, maybe being even in environments that are designed to be for our good, but we end up doing things that are painful, that are unwise, and kind of blowing things, blowing things up. So we, 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 we share the tradition of Adam and Eve of messing up even the best of circumstances and situations. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that does this to us? What, what's, what, what causes us to, to create uh, self-destruction, to hit that button, to take the fruit from the tree, whatever metaphor you want to use, to take the fruit from the tree and to mess up a good situation? What is it that, that, that does this. Now, Genesis 3.15 actually gives a few uh, answers to that uh, question. In fact, three very particular ones. It says, it says that the, the fruit of the tree was good for food, that, that Eve saw it and said it's good for food, it's pleasing to the eye, and it's desirable for gaining uh, wisdom. So these are three elements, three uh, reasons why Eve took the fruit in the first place, and our tradition is that we keep with these, these same actions. So first of all, uh, good for uh, food. As humans, we have the tendency to think very highly of our own ability to judge things. We have a very high, we're kind of hubris, if you will, that, that we think that we are able to, to, to judge things and that we have good uh, judgment, and so we see this in the case of Eve. Now, Eve does not have a history of making bad decisions, which is kind of interesting, that God has enabled a perfect being to have the capacity to, again, free will, to make choices, even bad choices. And so using now her own judgment, takes the, the fruit, the idea is, sees it. There's a bunch of other fruit in the garden, but this fruit is also good for food. It seems like it would be good for food. It, it, it looks like it would provide the nutrients that we need. And so she makes that judgment, it's good for food. Again, if we're honest, we make a lot of uh, judgments about things 
uh, even, even maybe against the advice of others, others who have been there, done things uh, in, in, in previous times, that end out not being really that great. I mean, have you ever made a decision that at the time seemed like it was just genius and then ended up being not so much? You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody here ever made a bad decision before? Mmm, mmm, yes. I have had the privilege to make many, many. Um, Sarah has a list. She can provide it to you later, afterwards. No, she would never do that. She, she does not keep lists, I don't think. At least I haven't found them yet. That's my wife, Sarah, by the way. Anyway, making bad decisions based on our own kind of self-reliance uh, that we can make good decisions, and so this is certainly the case here. It's interesting that later... Uh, one of the prophets talks about our ability to make good decisions. This is Jeremiah chapter 17. Now he's had time to reflect on humans' ability to make good judgments on our own. He says the heart, that thing in which we make a lot of our decisions, the heart is actually deceitful above all other things. Isn't this true? The heart, I mean, we make decisions based on our heart. I mean, the heart is kind of metaphorically for that decision making, that emotional decision-making element of our experience, but sometimes that is just completely out of whack, and so we make decisions based on what we think is good judgment, but we not recognizing that sometimes our inner being is just really, really messed up and, quite frankly, deceives us. The heart is deceitful above all things, so relying on our judgment, even in the perfect uh, uh, sense of Adam and Eve, who don't have the history, again, of, of, of failure, when relying completely on their own judgment, it didn't go uh, well. All right, so secondly, it says that Eve looked at the fruit and that it was pleasing to the eye. Now, I think this is really interesting because, you know, innately, I would suggest to you that innately, we as humans are, are uh, attracted to or compelled by beautiful things. I mean, when beauty is just something that we, like, are, are, are amazed by, mystified, again, I... Uh, Sarah, whole family, Italy, there are some amazing and beautiful things in Italy, architecture, art, food that both looks and tastes good. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, we love, we're attracted to beautiful things. I mean, there's nothing more incredible than seeing just some beautiful created uh, art. So I have a friend, we have the, an, uh, a, a group, an AA group that meets here on Thursday. And so I become friends with a few of them. One, one guy in particular, his wife is from Florence, which happened to be one of the cities that we were going to. And so he was so excited that we were going, so he gave us a book of all this incredible art in Florence. And then he told me about something I'd never heard before. Have you ever heard of Stenhal's syndrome? Have, has anyone been to Florence before? Have you, have you ever heard of Stenhal's syndrome? So Stenhal's syndrome is this syndrome that was identified by this guy, Stenhal, back in the 19th century. And basically, the idea was that people were going to Florence, and they would see, Stenhal himself experienced this at, uh, at one of the, the, the cathedrals there where he saw Machiavelli's tomb, and he saw the tomb of Michelangelo, and he just was overcome to the point of fainting by the, in, the incredible nature of the art. And so Stenhal's syndrome is, is going specifically to Florence, looking up at the ceilings or looking at the walls and being just overcome by emotion or fainting. Apparently, the hospital there in Florence has cases every summer when tourists come in of this Stenhal syndrome where they're just overcome and faint on the ground. Alex confessed, I'm going to tell you this morning, that he has experienced Stenhal syndrome at the 9 a.m. And so we want to have an intervention to him. But if for him, it doesn't come 
uh, with art, it comes with Little Debbies. <laughs> when he is engaged with the Little Debbie, the beauty of it just overcomes him and he faints. So I... I Oatmeal pies. Okay. All right. So, Alex, thank you for kind of revealing that to, to us at 9 a.m., and now I've shared that with the whole community. Anyway, um, so being in, 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 in experiencing beauty and then just being overcome with it. I, so I don't know what happened with Eve, whether that's what happened. Like, she, she saw this fruit, and it was so amazing that she just, like, brain shut down and had Stenholz syndrome over the fruit. But the idea is that she's engaged with something that, that, that's beautiful, and it's compelling, and our innate a desire to be engaged with beautiful things kind of kicks in, and again, back to the judgment, bad judgment. God has said, don't touch, don't get near this, not a good thing, but enticed by what is pleasing to the eye. And so sometimes beautiful things, even though we're innately engaged with beauty, beautiful things can be hurtful. Finally, finally, uh, we see that she thought it's desirable for a wisdom, this this fruit. And so, now again, I would suggest to you that God has created innately in each human being the desire to gain knowledge and to have wisdom. I mean, this is why we, we learn. This is why we are compelled to spend years and years and years in higher education. And some of you have been in school for like most of your life and you're at doctorate, one doctorate, two doctorate, three doctorate, I don't know, just on top of each other. And we watch things on, on on Netflix, and we want to learn, and we want to gain knowledge, and so we are compelled to seek uh, wisdom and seek knowledge, and so again, this comes out. By the way, this just is a note that sometimes the good things, really good things like beauty and seeking wisdom, which are innately good, can lead us to, to, to bad things when we allow them to become the ultimate uh, thing, when we make good things ultimate things as our friend here, Tim Keller, said many times in the city, when we make good things ultimate things, they become gods for us. And so we want to recognize that good things, when they take a place too high, can really uh, become gods or idols for us. So this is what's the happening. She's something that's beautiful, and now she, she determines that this, this fruit is going to help her have wisdom. Now, to be fair, to be fair, the name of the tree that God gave to the name of the tree does kind of imply this. It's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent, when he's, when he's engaging uh, Eve, brings this up. Hey, you're going to have knowledge. You can, in fact, you're going to have some special uh, God knowledge when you take the uh, fruit, and so it's desirable for gaining uh, wisdom, and so God has created us with this innate desire for gaining wisdom, and uh, in this case, it led to uh, problems because, and actually I think today we have a better understanding of wisdom and, and knowledge and the harmful sides of that sometimes because we are all familiar with the internet. You know, we, we want to gain knowledge and the internet itself is full of incredible information that will lead us to gain all kinds of knowledge. But the internet also has a side of knowledge of things that, you know, really, we really don't want to have knowledge about. I mean, you've, some of you, you've done a search on the internet and found images, ideas, pictures, or whatever, are things that you never actually wanted to have knowledge about. Have you ever done that? That's like a little bit horrific, maybe, maybe some kind of accident or whatever. I mean, Facebook is dealing with this, this reality. You know, they're, they're, they're advocates of free speech, but then people are 
you know, putting live cameras on their heads and going in and shooting up places. And so you're innocently watching a live stream on Facebook and you suddenly are, are, are a, a witness to a mass murder. Nobody wants to see that. That's knowledge that we don't want to, to see. You get where I'm going? And so we can understand this idea of the balance of knowledge. Like we want to have knowledge. We want to have wisdom. But some things you really don't want to have wisdom about. I don't want to have wisdom about what it's like to see a mass murder. Do you? So this is the balance of, of wisdom. So Eve evaluates the fruit and thinks, ah, yeah, no, it's going to give me wisdom. But it's the wrong kind of a wisdom. You don't really want to have the wisdom about evil. And so each of, these, uh, each of these elements, each of these reasons, good for food, you know, using her, her own judgment, we use our own judgment, it's pleasing to the eye, we're attracted to beauty, but sometimes uh, beautiful things can be harmful for us, and a desire for gaining wisdom, again, a good thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, can become a problem, and there is some wisdom we just really don't want to have. We just don't want to have. All of these go back to this general idea of hubris. And, and, and kind of putting ourselves or desiring to be in place of a God our, ourselves. And so it's interesting, I think, that God has even given the capacity for Adam and Eve to, to, to have hubris, to think that they, uh, that they somehow the wiring in their newborn, fresh brains still had the capacity to think that they could transcend God himself that they themselves could be gods because this is the argument that, that the serpent was making, that God didn't remove that neuron path from them, that they had the free will to make a choice. Not only could they hit the, the button of taking the fruit from the tree, but they were able to comprehend and think, wow, I can transcend God. God is holding back from me. Anyway, uh, hubris. So with all of this in mind, we have to ask ourselves, what hope do we have? If we are kind of innately, I mean, Adam and Eve started with them, but we also keep hitting the button. We also keep taking the fruit. We do things that mess up the good environments that we may be placed in or that God's wanting to do it in our, in our lives, and we keep hitting the self-destruct button. What hope do we have if this is the pattern in which our lives are currently stuck? And I know some of you here are really feeling this. Like You, 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 you recognize that you keep hitting that self-destruct button in your experience. There are things that you're doing there are circumstances that you keep putting yourself in that really are messing up your experience and, and, and affecting your ability to live holistically with each other, with God, and with yourself. So what hope do we have if we are inclined to continue to hit the self-destruct button and mess things up? This takes us back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God turning to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So the first hint there that God has a plan, that he has a provision for what will happen if the humans, his kids, decide they're going to hit the self-destruct button, that's not going to be it. It's not going to be over. He has a plan to, to make things new, to correct things, to bring restoration, even if that happens. And so they hit the self-destruct button, things aren't over, God turns to the serpent, here's the plan serpent. Your head is going to be crushed. There is going to be a time when the one who is inspiring or who has inspired these, these act of rebellion is going to come to an end. There's going to be destruction. But, but 
the offspring of the woman Eve that is going to facilitate the crushing of the head is also going to be injured. The implication, again, is pretty clear. The serpent is going to come to an end, but there's going to be injury to the offspring of Eve who causes the crushing. This leaves us with a question, well, who is uh, this offspring of Eve? Who is the offspring of Eve? And now this was actually a mystery for a very long time, for thousands of years. Who is the, the offspring of Eve? In fact, there's, there's some linguistic evidence that when Eve first conceived her child, okay, so when she first conceived her child, her first child, that she had this prediction of Genesis 3.15 in her mind, and she thought to herself, might this be the offspring? I mean, it would make sense, right? Is this the offspring who's going to crush the head of the serpent but be struck in the heel? So from almost day one, from the, the first procreation, the idea of God has a plan to restore all things, and he's going to work, and so they're looking for the offspring. Who's the offspring going to be? But that, that question remains a mystery for a long time, from the time of Eve all the way to the time of Jesus. Who is uh, the offspring? Now, the narrative story of the Bible goes like this. It starts adding pieces to the picture of who this offspring is, because this is the big question that's hanging in the, in the, in the balance for humanity as, as human history is going. Who is the offspring? And so the, the Bible story, the Bible narrative, slowly adds pieces to the puzzle of who this offspring is, is going to be. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7, we read about the offspring, that the offspring will be born of a virgin. In the book of uh, Daniel, chapter 9, we find that this offspring that was predicted back in Genesis 3.15 at the beginning, this offspring would come according to a specific timetable. In Psalm uh, chapter 22, the psalmist David writes about the offspring, that the offspring, when he comes, would be forsaken, pierced, but vindicated. In Psalm chapter uh, 16, we read that the offspring will be resurrected. In Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 11 writes that the offspring would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And so all of these were little mysterious pieces putting the, the puzzle pieces together to try to form the idea of who this mysterious offspring uh, would finally uh, be. And so we see here that the Bible has a very specific uh, function. Now, I would assert to you that, 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 that sometimes we, uh, we misunderstand either intentionally or, 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 or unintentionally what the purpose of the Bible is. Uh, the Bible is not like uh, many other books of philosophy that have list, uh, lived through uh, the ages. In fact, I would say that it's unlike uh, most other religious books. But, you know, most religious books are designed to help you to, to live properly. I mean, that's it's instruction. It's religious instruction about how you are supposed to uh, live, what you're supposed to do to be a good person so that you're going to get to the afterlife or, or whatever. The Bible certainly has instruction, don't get me wrong, but the primary purpose of the Bible is not to teach us how to live. The primary purpose of the Bible is to talk about what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do. See, the Bible is really God's story. It's, it's not our story. 
It's God's work. This is what Genesis 3.15 starts this off. This is what God is going to do. In fact, you take Genesis 3.15 and you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 says God is going to make all things new. So Genesis, Revelation, there's a theme through the Bible. And the theme is what God is doing, what God has done, and what God is going to do. It's really God's story. So we, 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 we misunderstand the Bible when we think that it's primarily about instructions for us how to live. I mean, you've heard that before. I mean, churches have a way of kind of promoting that idea. That the Bible is to teach you how to live. There's an element of truth about that. But the primacy, the purpose of the Bible is to talk about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do. So that, because that's the hope. See, our hope rests not in what we're, 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 we're going to do. Our hope is not in whether you can get the instructions of the Bible down and, and, and be a good, a good Christian. Because that's, there's no hope in that. You're actually not going to be very good. You're going to fail at that. And, and if, by the way, for those of, I would imagine for those of you who have tried that, have taken, okay, I'm going to use the Bible as an instruction manual, manual and I'm just going to live according to the Bible. Uh, it probably didn't go very well. Thank God... The purpose of the Bible isn't primarily about teaching us how to live. It's to talk about how God, in the form of Jesus, lived. And that our hope is rooted in his work, not in our own. This is incredibly good news. This is why the Bible is unique. It's not about how we're supposed to live. It's about how God has, has lived. And as we embrace how God has lived in Jesus, we have hope for a new uh, future. By the way, Jesus talks about this very thing. In John chapter 5, when he came and he was teaching, he says to the religious leaders, he said, you study the Bible, and you study it diligently. In fact, there's nobody who studies the Bible more diligently than you, the religious leaders. But you think that in them you will have eternal life. If you just study the Bible better and, and, and know it better, you're going to have eternal life. That, that's what Jesus is saying. But he said, these very scriptures, the Bible, testify about me, yet you refuse to come to life in me. So Jesus is saying, look, for those of you who are looking to the Bible as an instruction manual, watch out. It's a temptation, and get it because there's instruction in the Bible, but the primary purpose of the Bible is not to find out how you're supposed to live, but to find out how God has lived in Jesus and what that means for your life and for mine. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In his life and death and resurrection, uh, Jesus worked for restoration. And the Bible is God's narrative of that story, God working on our behalf, of God working to restore the relationship, to make all things new, to fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, crushing the head of the serpent. But in the meantime, being clipped in the heel. And so we think of the story of Jesus uh, dying on our behalf. This is, this is the prediction that the, the heel has been clipped, that there's some pain, that God himself experiences a pain, that the, the heel is, is, is clipped. But the great hope is that that work leads to a future work where the head of the serpent, the head of Satan, the head of the instigator is crushed. And once the head is crushed, I mean, you know, you get hurt in the foot, it's bad, it's not good. You don't want to get hurt in the foot, but, but that's not the end of your life. You get crushed in the head, that's it. When your head is done, that's it. And so the, in, in, the implications is, are that the serpent, the snake, the Satan is going 
create some pain for God. But God is going to bring restoration by crushing the head of the serpent. This is good news for you and for me. It's because we keep hitting that self-destruct button even when God is inviting us into an experience with him that is designed for us to flourish and we keep hitting the self-destruct button and messing uh, things up. But the hope is as we embrace God's work in Jesus, he is able to make us new each time we hit the self-destruct button and mess things up and that as, as we keep being filled with God's work in us, we start to be transformed and experience restoration in our experience so that we start getting smart about that button. Stop hitting the self-destruct button, but that is God's work, not ours. God working in us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Romans chapter 16, Apostle Paul says this, the God of peace will soon crush the head of Satan under your feet. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This is a good news. God wants to crush the head of Satan in our experience today. There's going to be, by the way, a final crushing when all things are, are fully made new. That's what Revelation, by the way, 21 was talking about when Jesus comes back and everything is ultimately made new. But God wants to crush the head of Satan in our experience today. He wants to help us to quit hitting that self-destruct button to bring transformation and renewal into our lives so that we live as new creatures. And so as we begin this journey over the next eight weeks, looking at just some of the simple principles of the Bible, some of the simple ideas of the Bible, it's my hope and prayer that we can embrace the great work that God has done through Jesus. We can allow God to crush Satan's head in our experience and help us to stay away from the button of self-destructiveness and to live as new people, transformed by the work of Jesus in our spirit. That is my prayer in all things, for our community today. Amen.